0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of the New Discourses podcast where we are going to talk about freaking Herbert Marcuse again. I'm James Lindsay. I'm your host, the founder, and president or something of New Discourses, whatever this is. We're going to talk about Marcuse again. And you can hear how thrilled I am about that proposition. I'm actually getting really sick of this guy. Just tell you a story. Um, Recently, on a flight, I was reading One Dimensional Man, and I just said to myself, I don't want to read this anymore, and I just stopped. And um, then on another flight, not that long after, I was reading another piece by him that I haven't mentioned very often, Counter-Revolution and Revolt, which is in the 70s, and I got about a third of the way through it, and I just was like, Ugh, I can't do this anymore. I can't keep reading this guy. But it's very important to talk about Herbert Marcusa again and again and again and again because we live in Herbert Marcuse's world. And um, really just reading his major works, his biggest works of the 50s, 60s, and I guess 70s, you can get a real sense that somebody picked this up, meaning mostly the New Left that followed him, but also certain characters picked this up and saw it as a template for building the world that we live in now. We have you could, If you were a big Marcuse fan, you would say that Marcuse was just right, but it's very clear that his vision has been forced into being, and it did not have to be this way. And so we live in the, the world of Herbert Marcuse. Those major works that I reference are Eros and Civilization, his 1955 attempt to push Freudian psychoanalysis into Marxian theory. And the rough idea of that book, not to get too diverted from today's theme, which is going to be about the new sensibility, um, that Marcuse brought us to, and that it's threatening the world now in his vision. But the, the point of Eros and Civilization, kind of broadly speaking, is that the society that we live in, this advanced capitalist society being written in 19, uh, 1955, um, forces people to, to, to repress their libido to become productive. So your libido could be obviously the sexual side, your sexual urges, your sexual drives, but it's also kind of your just will to do things. So a Freudian libido, and they're kind of the same thing. And he says that the the, the capitalist society represses the libido, the eros is, the kind of sexual side of that, forces you to, to to tamp that down and channel it into productive work. And then that productive work, uh, that repression, I should say, actually causes you to become aggressive. And so the aggression and violence inherent in the capitalist system has its roots in the suppression of eros or of of the libido in general. So the libido that might be released into the sexual realm is now being released into an aggressive realm, a a libido dominandi, you might call it, a a will to dominate. And so that's kind of his earliest major work, um, less important. But in 64, he publishes this book, One Dimensional Man. I've talked about this a little bit before. I'll read a little bit from it. And this is a huge deal. Um, He has this idea that the consumer society kind of by the same process I just talked about flatten society into a one-dimensional process. Get up, go to work, do what you're supposed to, make money, buy stuff, enjoy your life, do it again tomorrow. And you don't think outside of the box. You don't think outside of the pattern that's in front of you and everything in society reinforces that pattern um, to keep you stuck in it. And, and so you're not doing a critical theory of society anymore. You're not doing a critical theory of your own experience in society, so you're not becoming a discontented uh, proletariat revolutionary. So this is 64, 65, you rights Repressive Tolerance, which we did a whole series on here on the New Discourses podcast. And Repressive Tolerance is this idea that we have to rethink tolerance because that which maintains this repressive society, which is conservatism, generally speaking, or right-wing thought, generally thinking, uh, as he defines it, that which maintains this repressive society. So even the most liberal person on the planet who believe, and this is going to ring true of what you hear from the radical left all the time. I even saw today on Twitter some educator claiming that our completely Marxist schools are currently a center-right institution because they're not total wackadoodle leftists. And and so the point for them is that even if you are this kind of very left liberal character, but you believe in the structure of a free liberal democratic society, then you're a fascist. You want to preserve the status quo of the existing system. You want to use incremental progress, step-by-step change, so you're actually evil. And you are part of the the, the 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 right according to their thought. That's their definition of the right. And his this everybody who wants to maintain the existing system instead of overthrowing it for a complete new one. And so The left is the people who want to overthrow it for a completely new society. The revolutionaries, the radical revolutionaries, that's the only left. Everybody else is on the right. So you can take your character, like my friend Helen Pluckrose, for example, who's very, very ardently left and wants to tell you that she's very left all the time, as many people who have encountered our joint work and experienced her personality on social media will know and she is a rightist, according to this formulation in repressive tolerance. And under Marcusean thought, she she is an all-out conservative rightist, even as left-liberal as she is, and as principled as she is in left-liberalism. She's a rightist because she still wants to maintain the essential character of our society. And the thesis of repressive tolerance is we have to rethink tolerance to be tolerant of. The left, as understood this way, and to be utterly intolerant of the right, as understood this way. And so you can see how the two sets of rule books idea of um, our current world, the woke have two sets of rule books. For example, I say a lot on Twitter. Uh, that's what this means is the, the the double standards. The left is to be given tolerance even when they're violent, according to Marcuse, because violence is justified against a repressive regime that won't allow it any other way. The left is supposed to, to be outside of the law because the law itself is designed to maintain order and to maintain the uh, existing system so therefore it's all illegitimate so you have to be outside of it that's his argument and again we're talking far left people by normal everyday standards are still going to be considered hardcore rightists by this definition. Meanwhile, he says that you have to censor the right so that they not only can they not be tolerated in their activity and their action and their, uh, their, their, you know, anything that they do not only can they not be tolerated but they also have to be censored and pre-censored so that the thought can't even enter their head that's what he says and he holds up hitler he says well if we just wouldn't wouldn't have extended to him democratic tolerance then he couldn't have had what you know the the holocaust we would have avoided he says auschwitz and a world war uh, if we would have just not extended democratic tolerance to people like hitler but if He says what's ultimately necessary with that is to prevent, it's not Hitler himself, it's the movement that formed around him. So you have to censor and even pre-censor people on this right wing as he defines it, so that the thought of maintaining the society can't even enter their head, just in case it becomes fascistic. So that's 1965. 69, he writes the very important essay on liberation, which we did a podcast series here on the, the podcast about very important essay, we're going to touch on that some today, outlines basically what the new revolution looks like. I think it's probably the most important uh, essay to understanding leftism since the end of the 1960s that I've read, Um, even taking into account pieces of woke literature like, you know, gender trouble from Judith Butler or um, mapping the margins from Kimberly Crenshaw or any of this stuff. And then the, uh, just to elaborate briefly here, because we're going to come back to this essay. I don't want to dwell on it, but that's where he he lays out four chapters in the essay on liberation. And the first one is a biological foundation for socialism, which is freaky enough. Second is a new sensibility. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today uh, in this episode. And then in the third chapter, he outlines or, uh, a section. I don't know how to call it. It's, it's like a hundred pages. Is it a book? Is it? is it an essay? I don't know. Uh, but the third one is subverting forces in transition. So he kind of talks about well, what's upsetting the apple cart of the existing society, what's working. And he's looking at the so-called ghetto populations. He's looking at the student intelligentsia. He's looking at these liberation movements in the third world, like the Viet Cong, like Che Guevara and and these, um, these uh, national liberation fronts, these very violent communist liberation fronts, and saying that This fourth chapter and section is that we need to find solidarity, a common line of thought between all of those and create a new movement out of that. In fact, he he calls it a new working class, a new proletariat. And I just recently did an episode of the podcast talking about his new proletariat. Uh, and the need to create basically what I refer to now as identity Marxism and to just kind of shore up that term. You know, you've got classical Marxism that got branded as vulgar Marxism because it's only economics. And then eventually in the 20s, the 10s and 20s, 1910s, 1920s, you end up seeing these cultural Marxists, especially George Lukacs and uh, Antonio Gramsci coming into the scene in many regards, uh, Mao Zedong in China is a cultural Marxist, but uh, in Europe, not going to China. In Europe, you have out of cultural Marxism, out of that kind of milieu, Lukács, Gramsci, you end up having the establishment of the Frankfurt School, which it develops the critical theory, which is actually neo-Marxism. And what I say that neo-Marxism progresses, it's complicated a little bit, but in th- I say three generations, but there's in a sense there's four, but it's like grandparent parent and then there's two children if you follow me like siblings so you have the the very early rumblings of the frankfurt school which was very cultural marxist leading into horkheimer that's generation one horkheimer lays out the critical theory very kind of formal Uh, marcusa takes over after khrushchev is is, is confessed to the sin after World War II, but also after Khrushchev confesses to the sins of Stalin and becomes this new character on the scene. And it's a very different character, uh, neo-Marxism. In the last podcast I did, where I talked about the emergence of this new proletariat, Uh, And identity Marxism has its roots right there. Second generation neo-Marxism is the birthplace of what I call identity Marxism. And then um, it splits. You kind of have the critical theory school staying very philosophical. Jürgen Habermas takes it over. And then you have Marcuse's little revolutionaries, Angela Davis and all of these radical new leftists. They go off in a slightly different direction. So there's kind of your two siblings, the philosophical older brother that's largely irrelevant and the wild radical lesbian younger sister that's very relevant that became woke and so to give up again to shore up the term we have marxism generating you know kind of not working and generating cultural marxism as a response then neo-marxism sort of fits into that Refines finds it into this new kind of entity that's very suspicious of um, the way that consumerist society reproduces itself, how advanced society is succeeding. It's eliminating the realities of a Marxian proletariat ever arising in the true sense. So neo-Marxism is focused on that, uh, that the society works, that capitalism works, and they have to actually reckon with that. And it, just a cultural analysis isn't going to be enough to generate um, the change you need, and then it dives into identity politics with this kind of younger sibling version of the third generation, and that th- third generation identity politics I've said is identity Marxism. So it uses identity like race, gender, sex, sexuality, etc. Ability status, fat status, and the whole long exasperated, etc., as Judith Butler phrased it, of identity categories and intersectional thought or intersectionality in general as identity Marxism. It uses the same cultural Marxist apparatus, but it takes identity as a proxy for culture. If you're black, you have black culture. If you're Latino or Latinx, you have Latinx culture. If you are you know, Chicanx or whatever, then you have Chicanx culture and all of these different identity. If you're queer, you have queer culture. All these different identities become like nations. Very real. I mean, very seriously. I mean, in the folkish sense, um, all of these guys were more big fans of of kind of Herderian, uh, German, you know, the German, uh, what's his first name? Friedrich Johann I forget what his German names, Herder anyway probably both of those and um Herder was a big nationalist and had this idea of the folkish religion uh that the peop- a people had a spirit to them a folkgeist uh or folksgeist I guess is how you say that and so you know the, the 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 spirit of a of a country that that gives it its character and it's almost like a character on the world stage i think there's even like a japanese anime one of my kids was into where like literally countries are represented by individuals and they have like this play or whatever it's drama playing out between them and it's kind of thinking like that so the, the character becomes the representative of the the, the, the the Volksgeist, the, the spirit of that people. And so this has been transposed onto identity categories through the doctrine of structural determinism, that the structural forces of society, whether it's racism, sexism, even vulgar Marxism and classism to a degree, ableism, whatever has you creates a structural experience that creates a cultural experience for you. And that cultural experience of being, say, black in a white world or Latinx in a cis heteronormative, um, Western centric, to just to draw out all the pieces that matter, uh, white world in which still Latinx people are said to participate in white supremacy and anti blackness or whatever. This complicated intersectional nonsense. I call that whole intersectional crap identity Marxism now. But that's beside the point. We'll come back to this. Solidarity is where, or he wraps up in his hand liberation. And then um, his, this fifth work of Marcuse, just to kind of put a bookmark and all of that, is this Counter-Revolution and Revolt, which is really a, a sort of entertaining read as far as I've made it. Um, all of these works I've read all of, with the exception of Counter-Revolution and Revolt, like I said, I got about a third of the way through it the first time and I just quit. I actually wasn't reading One-Dimensional Man for the first time when I bailed out on it recently, um, but I think it was a Third time, maybe trying to get through it, and I don't think you understand Marcusa till you read him five or six times. He's so difficult to f- really figure out what he's talking about. But counter revolution and revolt, he seems to be pretty plain. He's pretty pissed off because he sees that his revolution that he wanted, like sparked up the '60s, ended with a lot, of especially '68, with a lot of riots, and like it appeared that the little revolution was going to spark off and go, and we're going to have the, the the whole thing, and then. It, <laughs> society stabilized and in 72 he's and he's bitching about the nixon administration and he's all pissed off um and it's like communism 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 is going to get away from us we have to get communism he's he's just kind of like he loses it and is giving the game away pretty clearly by then um which is sort of interesting but at any rate these five works together i think especially the last four of them eros and civilizations not that pertinent uh, comparatively, but one-dimensional man, repressive tolerance, and essay on liberation, and to a degree, counter-revolution and revolts. Those three in the 60s are my kind of core, really outline the world that we're living in. That was my big point there. And so now we want to understand the contours of that world. And what I said is we're going to focus, we're going to drill down on this idea of the new sensibility, which is the second chapter of an essay on liberation. I'm not going to read it to you again. In fact, I'm going to read as little as, of Marcuse as I can for this episode, I just want to point out this concept of the new sensibility because I have kind of boldly, um, maybe rashly even spoken about what I think that new sensibility is. And in fact, I just named it. I did identity Marxism, basically. In other words, intersectionality. I said intersectionality became our new sensibility, but I think it's more complicated than that. And I think the people who read Marcuse in different contexts have used him in different ways, and I think we actually have two nested ideas of a of a new sensibility, a bigger outside one. Think of like Russian dolls, and on the inside we have intersectionality as the smaller one that's actually a part of the bigger one. And the bigger one is sustainability, and I think this is derivable from his work. And then if you th- look at certain characters on the big stage who are pushing all of these major changes, Klaus Schwab, for example, with the World Economic Forum, would be a Example, um, I don't know if George Soros was a huge fan of Marcuse or not. He certainly would have read him, I would imagine. Um, these kinds of characters are, in fact, pushing the sustainability agenda. Even, I don't know what Bill Gates' relationship to Herbert Marcuse is, if any. It's not like a thing that scientists tend to read but he's pushing the sustainability. So this this has really become this kind of like culture of sustainability across everything big. The climate change narrative is only comprehensible this way. Turns out the uh, virus narrative is made comprehensible this way. Everything is being packaged up in terms of sustainability. And they're saying that everything must change because of sustainability. So that's the other piece of the new sensibility that Marcuse has outlined and it's a little more difficult to draw this out of what he's written, but it's there. Um, I don't want to read a ton, but it's, it's, it's actually huge in one dimensional man. It's harder to spot in, uh, it, it's, <laughs> It's there in S.A.N. Liberation. And if you listen to the series, you'll hear me rail on it a few times when we get to it. Marcuse has this habit of like sprinkling in huge ideas across in like weird ways across many long, tententious paragraphs. And so it's very difficult to spot like here's the place he says it. Um, But I'll try to give you a taste of it without reading too much of them. I do just want to read exactly like one part however, of counter-revolution and revolt to you that kind of sums the whole thing up. But then I think I have to touch, uh, like flesh it out by getting into essay and liberation. But here, and and like I said, One Dimensional Man is basically all about this. And we'll talk about, I'll read a little bit of that too. So just to jump straight into the idea, where did this idea of sustainability come from? Now you could say, oh, well, we have to think about that. And then climate change, what if the climate stuff is unsustainable? What if our approach to... You know, travel is unsustainable. What if our approach to population is unsustainable? And by the way, Mercusa does touch upon that in these essays too, population being unsustainable. But he has this one little rant in the very beginning of Counter-Revolution and Revolt um, in the official PDF, which has page numbers. Usually I read these off of websites that don't have page numbers. But in this official PDF, it's on page 23, so it's not very far in Um And he's complaining about capitalism, as you would imagine. But then he just has this one little part where he vents. He says, can one not make a living without that stupid, exhausting, endless labor, living with less waste, fewer gadgets and plastic, but with more time and more freedom? That's his rhetorical question he asks. And he says that it's absolutely the most important thing. It's, it's usually abstract, he says, but it's no longer, he says, it is no longer an abstract, emotional, unrealistic question. It assumes dangerously concrete, realistic, subversive forms. So the question, can one not make a living without that stupid, exhausting, endless labor living with less waste, fewer gadgets and plastic? but with more time and more freedom. So what he's saying is, and we're going to see this theme again and again, that we're all working too hard, that because of the advanced state of technology and capitalism, we can meet our needs without having to work in the so-called rat race, he mentions, all the time. We're always doing the rat race, always doing the rat race, and we can actually eject from the rat race if we just allow ourselves to. And... um what it means is we have to live with less. Can we not just have less and work less too, and then we'll have more time and more freedom. We'll also produce less waste, but we'll have less stuff. And having less stuff is really what this is all about. And this is one of the biggest themes in Marcuse that you have to understand to understand what he's getting at. As far as this rat race thing goes here near the end this is in the solidarity section of essay on liberation he says the the absorption of unemployment and the maintenance of an adequate rate of profit so he's talking about the successes of advanced capitalism and he's comparing it against the soviet in the third world situation he says the absorption of unemployment and the maintenance of an adequate rate of profit would thus require the stimulation of demand on an ever larger scale thereby stimulating the rat race of the competitive struggle for existence through the multiplication of waste, planned obsolescence, parasitic and stupid jobs and services. The higher standard of living propelled by the growing parasitic sector of the economy would drive wage demands toward capital's point of no return. And so what he's saying is that capitalism is actually You can imagine it like an exponential growth curve, which we're all now familiar with thanks to the pandemic. And it's just growing and growing and growing. We have to have more stuff, more money, more stuff, more stuff, more stuff. And to get that, we have to work more and more hours, more time. Doesn't matter that the machines make us more productive. Doesn't matter that the average laborer shows up and does Five times as much work, let's say, I don't know what the real number is, in the same amount of time because he has a computer and he has a robot and he has this and he has that. It doesn't matter that the productivity is way up and we're making more and more and more and more and more. This is unsustainable is what he's saying. He says the, the the progress of this is going to require the stimulation of demand on an ever larger scale. That's unsustainable. This is going to be a bubble that's going to pop and meanwhile it's making people miserable the rat race of the competitive struggle for existence through the multiplication of waste planned you can't talk about anything good planned obsolescence parasitic and stupid jobs and services and he says this produces a higher standard of living but it's a parasitic sector of the economy and it's going to drive that level of demand toward capital's point of no return So he's obviously very upset and bothered by this idea. And again, that's from Essay on Liberation. Um, Let's see if I can actually skip quickly to um, where he talks about the uh, same idea that at the beginning of the third section, Subverting Forces in Transition, he talks about this same kind of thing. Um, Again, he says, you know, we have this an increasingly automated machine system no longer used as a system of exploitation would allow that distanciation of the laborer from the instruments of production, which Marx foresaw at the end of capitalism. So technology is going to get good enough where we don't have to work as much anymore. That extra productivity can be transformed into leisure time to not having to do things. And he says here, it says the workers would cease to be the principal agents of material production and become its supervisors and regulators. The emergence of a free subject within the realm of necessity. So the realm of necessity makes us have to work. But if we don't have to work very much because our tools and our machines and our gadgets and our plastic make it easier and get it done for us, we don't have to work as much and we can become free subjects within that realm. But that's not what advanced capitalism is actually doing he says already today the achievements of science and technology permit the play of the productive imagination experimentation with the possibilities of form and matter hitherto enclosed in the density of unmastered nature the technical transformation of nature tends to make things lighter easier prettier the loosening up of reification the material becomes increasingly susceptible and by the way, that's a Lucacchian idea, a reification. Uh, so it's, it's cultural Marxism. The material becomes increasingly susceptible and subject to aesthetic forms, which enhance its exchange value, the artistic, the mo- uh, modernistic banks, office buildings, kitchen, sales rooms, and salespeople, etc. Within the framework of capitalism, the tremendous growth in the productivity of labor enforces the ever enlarged production of luxuries. And that's in quotes, scare quotes, so-called luxuries, wasteful in the armament industry and in the marketing of gadgets, devices, trimmings, and status symbols. The same trend, he says, of production and consumption, which makes for the affluence and attraction of advanced capitalism, makes for the perpetuation of the struggle for existence. Look at that, it's a rat race. For the increasing necessity to produce and consume the non-necessary. See, so he's pissed off that, that, that what's happening. So I started in 72 where he says that, can't we just have less stuff? And here he's in 69, he's complaining. What we're actually doing is produce We're no longer just meeting people's basic needs. This is a major theme of this essay. We're no longer just meeting people's basic needs. We're meeting people's basic needs and they become comfortable in those, having those met. And then they start wanting more stuff. Because their needs are met. So they start looking for things to fulfill them. An expensive hobby or something. They take up, you know, they get into classic cars. Or res- my, my, Some of my uncles did car restoration. Built hot rods, um, for example. Loved it. You know, typical old school blue collar guys building out their hot rods. It was like their, their thing to do. And, you know, they dumped all kinds of money and all kinds of time into this. Well, this is a luxury. It's wasteful. You don't need that. It's not a vital need, but he says in this essay that what happens is you get the working class and you meet all their basic needs and they start enjoying their life and they start having their little perks to life. They start having their hot rods they're building. They start having their man cave and their sports memorabilia and all this non necessary stuff. And they start to feel like they need it. He says that becomes a sense of a sec- like a second nature that they need this stuff. Like an intro. It's like it's a, it's a, almost like it, these luxuries become vital needs. He even says that somewhere in the essay. I'm not searching all the way through for it. He says that what this process of advanced capitalism does is it takes luxuries and makes people think that they need them. And in 72, a few years later, he's like, can't we just be happy with less and then we wouldn't have to work and we could have our stupid revolution. So this is even complaints. So what he said, what he complains about here is amazing. So we just saw him complain about the increasing necessity to produce and consume the non-necessary. Fuck enjoying your life. It's non-necessary. Enjoyment is non-necessary. When we could be having communism instead, you assholes. He says the growth of... This is what he condemns. The growth of the so-called discretionary income in the United States indicates the extent to which income earned is spent on other than basic needs. Former luxuries become basic needs. See, I was like, he says it somewhere else in here. It's the next, pair, next sentence. Oh my God. I should read ahead. I knew what I was trying to get into. Let me just, the growth of the so-called discretionary income in the United States indicates the extent to which income earned is spent on other than basic needs. You Stupid working class assholes. How dare you enjoy yourself? This is a whole freaking thing. Former luxuries become basic needs. You know, you just need that new jersey for your favorite team. It just really brings you fulfillment. And it's not a basic need. You don't actually need the jersey. Why should you enjoy your life when we could be working for... Freaking communism instead and then everybody would be free. But no, you're selfish. You want to enjoy your life. You want to spend your discretionary income that you worked your ass off to earn and you worked your ass off to build a stable platform of wealth, say a home that you own so that you can risk spending your extra discretionary income on things that you enjoy that enrich you on a mental, emotional social or spiritual level, but they're not basic needs. So screw you. Working class, you betray this is a whole attitude. I did the last podcast with a screw you, working class. You betrayed your revolutionary instinct. You became conservative. So fuck you and everything you enjoy because your former, these were luxuries and former luxuries became basic needs. A normal development, he says, which under corporate capitalism extends the competitive business of living to newly created needs and satisfactions. So you now have all this stuff that you weren't hungry, you weren't cold. You didn't even know you needed it until you were comfortable and then corporate capitalism came in and advertised it to you. This is his paranoia, paranoid personality disorder to the core with this stuff. This is his paranoia. Capitalism snuck in and advertised to you, hey, hey, Mr. Working Class Guy, I see you have a comfortable home. I see you have enough to eat. Did you know that you could have this freaking cool thing that you might actually enjoy and it fits the lifestyle that you and seem to derive uh, spiritual and psychic and social and emotional benefit from, hey, you could have this. You could be this. You could be the kind of guy who has custom bowling shirts and custom bowling shoes and a really nice ball. Luxuries that have become basic needs. You can have that. He says Capitalism sneaks in and extends the competitive business of living to newly created needs and satisfactions. You might be happy with your own, you know, custom bowling gear. You might be happy with that. You might like your hot rod. You might like your sports memorabilia. You might like all that, but that is a newly created needs and satisfactions. You stupid conservative jerk who should have stayed. Miserable. So you would have been a Marxist revolutionary. That's the entire point of this part of the essay. I'm not exaggerating. I've done a whole bunch of reading of this thing to you guys, so you know I'm telling the truth. Go listen to it. I've got like 10 other episodes on Marcuse already. This is section, this is number three, the subverting forces in transition. I think I titled it Marcuse's subverting forces in transition on the new discourse podcast. It's a few episodes back. Go find it or listen to the one immediately previous to this, where I talk about the rise of the new proletariat. I talk about the same thing. He says the fantastic output, because this is weird because he's like getting his rocks off on how good stuff is, but he's pissed off that it's good. The fantastic output, he says of all sorts of things and services defies the imagination while restricting and distorting it in the commodity form. So yeah, by the way, your hot rod, your bowling stuff, whatever thing is that makes you happy it's not really meeting your needs it's not really enriching your life it's not really uh, allowing you a path to connection and spirituality and happiness and, and 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 the life you actually wanted to live in a free society it's not really doing that no it's all commodity form it's all fake it's all fake it's just a commodity it's been packaged up and sold to you as an image hey if you're the kind of guy who drives this kind of car you'll be cool you're a corvette man so you work your ass off, save up your money, get your Corvette, and you only enjoy it because the freaking marketers at Chevrolet convinced you that you are a Corvette man, and now you identify as that. It's just a commodity. It's in commodity form. He says this commodity form through which capitalist production enlarges its hold over human existence. It's not that there's, for him, It's for Marcuse, it's not that there's this increasing set of options that allow you to enrich your life your way. It's not that you're meeting some kind of like free freedom dream where there's more and more stuff available. Like, it, no, it's all fake. It's all commodities. And it's it's taking hold of human existence. It's controlling everybody making you have to keep working in the rat race so you can earn the money so you can feel satisfied because your Corvette's not enough. Now you got to buy the Corvette gear. Now you got to buy a little model Corvette for your house. Now you got to get this. Now you got to buy track time if you like to drive it fast or whatever it is. It's all commodities and it's all being manufactured. This is his paranoia. This is what one-dimensional man is all about. We'll read from that in a minute too, and he says, and yet precisely through this spread of this commodity form, the repressive social morality which sustains the system is being weakened. So because you 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 don't have this repressive social morality anymore, because we now have consumer morality instead, and as he calls this an obvious contradiction into which liberating possibilities of the technological transformation of the world, the the light. And the free life on the one hand and the intensification of the struggle for existence on the other, which is communism versus this life where you get to work and have cool stuff. And there's lots of cool stuff available. He says that generates among the underlying population that diffused aggressiveness, which unless steered to hate and Fight the alleged national enemy hits upon any suitable target, white or black, native or foreigner, Jew or Christian, rich or poor. So this is relative privation. You're, you're racist because you aren't being able to get everything that you want or whatever. Um, unless you have a common national enemy, the alleged national enemy, he's talking about global communism there, by the way. And he says, this is the aggressiveness of those with the mutilated experience, your Corvette, your bowling shoes, they mutilated your experience. You fucking working-class, non-revolutionary, conservative asshole that we all hate so much because you aren't being a Marxist anymore, because you have a good life, where Horkheimer said that this is we found out that advanced capitalism Marx was wrong. It doesn't make people miserable. It helps them build a better life. And this was a crisis to these neo-Marxist fucks. This is the aggressiveness of those with the mutilated experience, with the false consciousness and the false needs, the victims of repression, who for their living, depend on the repressive society and repress the alternative, meaning communism. Their violence is that of the establishment and takes as its targets figures which, rightly or wrongly, seem to be different and and to represent an alternative. In other words, radicals and revolutionaries and other nonsense. So this is, this is the place that we're at and we're going to come back to some essay on liberation in a minute, but let me just like, let me just read to you just a tiny bit here from, I'm not even going to try to get too much of one dimensional man. Cause he goes on, he hits this point actually quite repetitively. This maybe isn't the best, most representative paragraph. Turns out there's a lot of them. I was skimming through the first chapter earlier and I'm like, where he outlines what a one dimensional civilization is. And I could read this whole section, um, but it's so clear. Like, all right, I'll read some part that I wasn't even going to. It's a whole section. I could I could just so easily read it because he's complaining. People recognize themselves in their commodities. They find their soul in their automobile, hi-fi set, split-level home, kitchen equipment. God forbid you be happy in stuff you actually enjoy. You stupid working class schlub who's not... A proletariat revolutionary, you don't want to join a liberation movement because you get to have you get to find your soul in your automobile, hi-fi set, split-level home, kitchen equipment, you know, and screw you for being happy. He says the very mechanism which ties the individual to his society has changed, and social control is anchored in the new needs which it has produced. The prevailing forms of social control are technological in a new sense, to be sure, the technical structure and efficacy of productive and destructive apparatus, of the productive and destructive apparatus, sorry, has been a major instrumentality for subjecting the population of the established social division of labor throughout the modern period. Moreover, such integration has always been accomplished by more obvious forms of compulsion, loss of livelihood, the administration of justice, the police, the armed forces. It still is. But in the contemporary period, the technological controls appear to be the very embodiment of reason for the benefit of all social groups and interests. To the extent, to such an extent that all contradiction seems irrational and all con- uh, counteraction impossible. See, this. by the way, this is one of those reasons that I say that we have been stuck into Herbert Marcuse's world. Here's the Iron Law of Woke Projection. This is exactly what we're living in right now, right? But not the way he's described it. He's talking about a free society generating this, but we now have a tyrannical technocracy generating this. And the technological controls appear to be the very embodiment of reason for the benefit of all social groups and interest. Anybody's got their COVID policy there, by the way, but it's his people enforcing this shit on us. To such an extent that all contradiction seems irrational, you anti-vaxxer conspiracy theorist, and all counteraction impossible. Yeah, because we're going to fire you from your job, loss of livelihood. We're going to put you in a goof camp administration of justice we're going to send the cops to make sure you stay home when you're supposed to the police and we're going to radicalize the military to make sure that nobody can get away with it. the armed forces it still is they're manifesting his world they've read this stuff even the places where he's issuing a warning and they've they've turned us into this world it's a very odd thing i know this section is really all about that but the that's not my point right now. We can come back to that. I don't want to do another damn podcast on this guy, but we can come back to this. The point is that um, his view is that the, this new high-tech advanced capitalism, this is written in 64 now, changes how people are and it makes them happy and makes them think that they're having an enjoyable life, but what it's actually more importantly doing is stealing away their revolutionary potential. And This isn't quite what uh, part I wanted to read. Um, The part I want to read is where he defines one-dimensional man and the one-dimensional thought and behavior technically for the one-dimensional society. He says, The productive apparatus and the goods and services – this is a couple pages later – which its which it produces sorry the productive apparatus and the goods and services which it produces sell that's in scare quotes or impose the social system as a whole the means of mass transportation and communication the commodities of lodging food and clothing the irresistible output of the entertainment and information industry carry with them prescribed attitudes and habits certain intellectual and emotional reactions which bind the consumer more or less pleasantly to the producers and through the latter to the whole. The products indoctrinate and manipulate. They promote a false consciousness which is immune against its falsehood. And as these beneficial products become available, and let me hit that word again, beneficial products, and as these beneficial products become available to more individuals and more social classes, that's you poor people, that's you, poor people, and as these beneficial products become available to more individuals and more social classes, in other words, as poor people can get what they want, not just what they barely need, the indoctrination they carry ceases to be to be publicity. It becomes a way of life. What does he have to say about this way of life? You, you, same theme, right? It is a good way of life. That's what he says about it. It is a good way of life, much better than before. And as a good way of life, here comes the Marcusean punchline. And as a good way of life, it militates against qualitative change, a.k.a. It drives out communist discontent. And as a good way of life, it militates against qualitative change. You enjoy your life. You stupid, poor, lower class people who can now have more beneficial products than ever and your needs are met and you might actually have stuff you like and they indoctrinate you with that. That's how they get you. And it becomes your way of life. You care too much about your Corvette you worked your ass off to get. You care too much about your bowling shoes and et cetera. It's a good way of life, much better than before. And as a good way of life, it militates against qualitative change. Thus emerges a pattern of one-dimensional thought and behavior in which ideas, aspirations, and objectives that by their content transcend the established universe of discourse and action and are either repelled or reduced to terms of this universe. That's the key of the one-dimensional. Thus emerges a pattern of one-dimensional thought and behavior in which ideas, aspirations, and objectives that by their content transcend the established universe of discourse and action. That's a complicated bunch of words, right? Let me just change that for you to what he means. Thus emerges a pattern of one-dimensional thought and behavior in which communism is either repelled or reduced to terms of this universe. And by being reduced to terms of his universe, he says he would be saying that it's misrepresented or that it's commodified and bought up and brought into the existing repressive system. They are redefined, he says, by the rationality of the given system and of its quantitative extension. And so this is what one-dimensional man is all about, is that the capitalist consumer society eats everything and turns everything into the the, the one-dimensional project of continuing this unsustainable project, this un- unsustainable growth, um, that w- is going to risk everything. Um, I'm going to see if I can find the, uh, part, there's one more part here in essay on liberation that kind of makes this kind of case for me. Um, but it's kind of all scattered. I didn't feel like gathering quotes, like a grown up. um, the argument that he makes, in kind of the briefest, it's near the end. The argument that he makes is is that um, this is unsustainable. I think it may be actually the first thing that I read. This is an unsustainable trajectory. We're going to keep Making more, keep making more, keep making more, keep making more. Yeah. And it's going to drive capitalism to its brink. So that's this argument. So this is, this is, this is the background milieu for the points that I want to make of this in this podcast. And that is that for Marcuse, capitalism isn't just something that's going to teeter and collapse. And like we talked about in the previous podcast, the, the neo Marxists believe believed unlike the Marxists before the 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 society had two possible trajectories out of capitalism and they criticize older Marxists for believing it only had one. So traditional Marxism believes in a strong historicism where capitalism is finally going to awaken those, those, um, Alienated feelings, the discontentedness in the working class—it's going to rise up. It's going to produce a a proletariat revolution, and that proletarian revolution is going to take us through into socialism. So, communism or capitalism is going to give way to socialism. It's only a matter of when and when the conditions can be made right. Lenin says, "Accelerate the contradictions, comrade, to make sure that the conditions are made right." And that's Marxism. And the neo-Marxists said, "Oh, we messed up. We messed up." We messed up. Fascism can happen too. So for them, capitalism is going to disintegrate, but it's either going to disintegrate into to fascism, or it's going to disintegrate, or it's going to be saved, I should say, by the socialists having the revolution. But ultimately, part of the argument that Marcuse makes very clearly is that capitalism is unsustainable. That's why he's begging with the reader in 1972, Encounter, Revolution, and Revolt. Can't we just be happy with less? We'll have less waste we'll have to work less. We can be more content. We'll have more time. We'll have more freedom because we don't have to work as much. And the sacrifices will have less gadgets or fewer gadgets. Yeah, I think he says less though. We'll have fewer gadgets and less plastic. Of course, he has to say plastic. It can't be like your cool bowling shoes or your Corvette or whatever. We're just going to to have less stuff. If we just... Get the equity going and like simmer it down to a lower level where people have less stuff that they want. Well, we wouldn't have to work as hard and we'd have more time and more freedom. We'd produce less waste and we would have less of the stupid planned obsolescence. It is actually a part of kind of junky capitalism um, where we're not taking care of trying to make things work. Uh, in the best way, and are just pursuing profit principle. We could talk about the McDonald. if you haven't looked into, I, I can't do the justice of the story, but the, the McDonald's ice cream machine story is a perfect example of where crony capitalism runs, it leads to a broken product and people getting ripped off. But the problem isn't capitalism, it's crony capitalism. And crony capitalism is like proto-fascism. So the problem is, always in this cronyism. And the neo-Marxists conflated these and they just believe that it'll always happen. Like it's impossible for say the FTC to step in and then like they are now and investigate McDonald's and its relationship with the ice cream machine Taylor to find out that there's probably some really, really um, dastardly monopoly behavior going on there. A very exclusive agreement that's leading to a crooked need for constantly calling repairmen to make the company lots of money at the expense of the franchise owners. But nevertheless, but they, they act like that's not possible. And in the same breath, they complain that somehow capitalism is working and making everybody have a better life. And it is exactly these kind of bumpers on crony capitalism and monopoly, like antitrust laws and things like that that came into play that fixed it. And the problem we face now is actually the same one, is that we have lots of great stuff for antitrust where it comes to the industrial sector, we understand how to ap- apply it. In other words, and we didn't think very well about how to apply it to the finance and banking industry or to the big tech industry as those emerged. Hmm. So now we have these kind of trust and crony capitalist problems emerging again. And there, but the irony is that, well, you, maybe it's for cover. They're using wokeness and Marcuse's world and they're imposing that world on us in order to be able to evade, I guess, the right kind of critique that whatever it is that they're succeeding to do with it. No, no, we're not, you know, crony capitalists. That's a right-wing thing. We're obviously left-wing radicals while we're screwing everybody over. But the point is that capitalism is unsustainable. So like I said, the point, uh, the second chapter of this essay, the point of that is we need to generate a new sensibility if we want to create a new liberated world where people have less and they work less and they have more time and more freedom. And we don't work just to produce the gadgets, to sell the gadgets, to have the gadgets, to produce the gadgets, to sell the to, to, to sell the gadgets, to have the gadgets in this endless cycle. Like I go to work producing gadgets that nobody needs, but somebody might want. And I do that just because there's a demand, but the demand is fake because it's all premised on the fact that nobody actually needs it, but they just want stuff. So they go and they produce crap nobody needs. And everybody's selling more and more crap nobody needs so they can make the money, so they can buy crap that they don't need. And that's how the consumer society traps you. That's kind of Marcuse's view. And he's like, this is unsustainable. It's going to push capitalism to its breaking point. And I phrased it that way specifically because that's what we heard in that weird 2016 World Economic Forum video about the Great Reset, is that Western civilization, the logic or the more the values of Western civilization will be pushed to their breaking point. And there we have that. Um, also in that same video, you will own nothing and you'll be happy. So you can just be content with less, right? We'll have less waste. Why? Because that whole thing is rooted in sustainability everything's going to be sustainable. So the new sensibility I argued previously was intersectionality, but that's actually just one piece of a bigger set of new sensibility thought which or I guess I phrase that badly, a, a new other a bigger new sensibility which is everything has to be sustainable. It's what the World Economic Forum calls a circular economy. Circular economy perfectly sustainable, everything in a sense is totally recycled because the economy runs in a circle. It constantly just chases its own tail, like the snake eating its own tail, uh, the Ouroboros, or however you pronounce that. It, it, it is a circular economy now. It's totally sustainable. So everything has to be environmentally sustainable. And so you hear a lot about sustainability with the environment, whether it's waste, whether it's pollution, whether it's plastic, we all have to have cardboard straws that are terrible, or whatever it is all has to be sustainable. We have to have sustainable working models because we're not exploiting, say, any workers and their labor. But then that ties in that that, that's in in, in another part of it. We have have, actually, I should have said three letters that go with a sustainability model. And these are ES and G environmental, social and governance. And social is where the intersectionality mostly comes in. Governance has to have intersectionality built in so we're not exploiting people So through good governance and an environmental, that's where the climate side was going to come in and climate change, or sorry, climate justice as a concept links in intersectionality to that too. So intersectionality becomes this constant thinking in terms of where you are in the broader social positioning, which you could say measure with something like a social credit score, that becomes the dynamic by which we're all going to understand how we fit into the new sustainable circular economy. So, sustainability becomes the new sensibility. Everything must be sustainable. Everything corporate, everything governance has to be sustainable environmentally, socially, and in terms of how we're going to actually govern companies and, and people. ESG. So these are all laid out in the so-called, what's the other huge thing? Was it from the United Nations? The Sustainable Development Goals, SDG, I think is what that was. Sustainable by 2030, sustainable, everything sustainable, sustainable. This becomes a new, sustainable is a fucking communist buzzword as it turns out, and it's rooted in this new sensibility of Herbert Marcuse, where capitalism, if you imagine you're, say, Klaus Schwab reading Marcuse, and you're reading this part where it's, oh, we just keep making needs, we keep making needs, and these needs are going to blow up, and the capitalism gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Exponential growth is happening of of stuff and money, and it's all fake. It's a huge bubble. Oh, no, it's going to pop. What are we going to do? We have to get out of that and get into a circular economy. That's what we do. We have an entire revolution in how we do the economy and we turn it circular instead of linear exponential so that it's constantly going around and around and around. It has no, no start and no stop, no front and no back, no, no beginning and no end. And we're gonna have this new whole economy. Why? To break to break out of that threat that Marcusa outlines. We need this totally new way of thinking about things, not a economy that's, you know, generally linear or geometric, but no, one that's circular totally new paradigm of thought. And you can picture somebody like Schwab reading Marcuse and seeing this and then seeing all the talk about the intersectional, the seeds of the intersectionality, the new proletariat, that who are the losers of this? He, he talks about the people in the global south. He talks about the people in the global east. He talks about the ghetto populations. He talks about uh, the, so the racial minorities. He talks about the sexual minorities. He talks about the feminists. He talks about the radical outsiders. Oh, these people are kind of the losers. And who is to, who's to shepherd them through to the next thing? Mm, the liberal intelligentsia. The students who are going to be brought into this new sensibility that's going to be communicated and taught through the universities, where universities are now going to uh, do the ought for us. He actually says that, right? That is in the ought. Let me get to that part. It's unbelievable. Um, Yeah, so how much of this do I have to go back? Uh, So the development, this is essay on liberation, somewhere in that third section, uh, transition forces the development of a true consciousness is still the professional function of the universities. No wonder then that the student opposition meets with the all but pathological hatred on the part of the so-called community, including a large sections of organized labor. So the student opposition means the radical goofball students. Okay. So the development of a true consciousness means becoming critical theorists to Marcuse. So the development of a true consciousness is still the professional function of the universities. And that can be read two ways. If you believe the true consciousness is a critical consciousness, it means universities exist to make critical theorists. And if you believe that it actually means becoming intellectually mature, then you're going to say, oh yeah, of course that makes sense. And you're going to let it slide. And then these critical theorists that they're generating on campus are the student opposition. They're little Marxists in training. No wonder then he says that the little Marxists in training meet with, meets with with, with the all but pathological hatred on the part of the so-called community, including large sections of organized labor. Remember that working class that's supposed to be the proletariat? Well, they have turned conservative and they hate these stupid Marxist students and the hippies. As being in the sixties to the degree to which the university becomes dependent on the financial and political goodwill of the community and of the government, the struggle for a free and critical education becomes a vital part or part in the larger struggle for change. So he's afraid that, you know, our society is going to say, no, we're not going to teach this Marxist bullshit in our colleges, which is exactly what it sh- was saying and should have kept saying. And we lost track of that one. And now we're in a big, big problem because he says the degree is, sorry, the university is dependent on the financial and political goodwill of the community and the government. And to the degree that that's true, they've got to struggle. Guess what that tells us, by the way, is people who are had enough of this, the financial and political goodwill of the community at large toward these stupid Marxist institutions needs to dry up. No more financial and political goodwill. So if you're a state government, defund your fucking universities in your state. If you're an alumnus donor, defund them. You got some kind of power where you can do the legislation, tax their endowments. They don't deserve our financial and political goodwill because they are rotting our country out from the inside. Absolutely rotting it out from the inside. And he says, well, if to the degree to which they depend on that, so they're th- to the degree that they are independent of financial and political goodwill of the community and of the government, they're in trouble. Take it away from them. They're rotting our society. They are not the university you graduated from. But that's not what we were talking about. He says, what appears to be the, as the extraneous politicization of the university by disrupting radicals is today, as it was so often in the past, the logical internal dynamic of education. So becoming radical critical theorists in the university, he's trying to say, is what universities were always meant for. It is the translation of knowledge into reality, of humanistic values into humane conditions of existence. So he's going to trade off of humanistic values and knowledge. We're going to turn knowledge into reality. We're going to turn humanistic values into humane conditions of existence. In other words, we're going to pervert humanism, which is this caring about people thing caring about the suffering of people and the flourishing of people into communism because when he says humane conditions of existence he means communism we're going to transform them that's the point of the university that's what he's saying the dynamic this dynamic i'm sorry arrested by the pseudo neutral forces features of academia would for example be released by the inclusion into the curriculum of courses giving adequate treatment to the great nonconformist movements in civilization decolonize the curriculum in other words and to the critical analysis of contemporary societies. Critical race theory needs to be in every level of education. That's what he's saying. And he says, that why? And this is what I wanted to get to. The groundwork for building the bridge between the ought and the is between theory and practice is laid within theory itself. That's what I wanted to point out. So for Marcusa, his whole idea is that the theory is the, it's, it, this is a religion. Okay. This is, this is a religion. He is now saying that it is the objective of the university to transform into something that can put the ought back into the is because the theory is where that can be done and the theory is what needs to be made center and that's for me theory with a capital t he doesn't capitalize it but anyway and so then he rants about this and he says that the whole point, the driving force of their movement is the refusal to grow up, to mature, to perform efficiently and normally in and for a society which compels the vast majority of the population, same theme we're talking about, to earn their living in stupid, inhuman and unnecessary jobs in order to sustain the profitable productivity on which the hierarchy depends, utilizing its vast resources for waste, destruction, and an ever more methodical creation of conformist needs and satisfactions. And his answer to that is uh, to the degree to which the rebellion is, is directed against a functioning, prosperous democratic society. It is a moral rebellion against the hypocritical, aggressive values and goals, against the blasphemous religion of this society, against everything it takes seriously, everything it professes while violating what it professes but for him, it is that it is a theory contains the ought that's going to put it back into the is. And it's the university's job. It's social, social science's job to become the church. Trading off of humanistic values and transforming them into humanism is only achieved when we have communism. That's his whole freaking goal, and I don't even know how I got off on this tangent now. But this is what his idea is. This is what the new sensibility is about, and it's all. I guess I'm just going to transition right back here, all smooth like it. It's all predicated on the idea that we need a sustain, like it's all sustainable. Why? We we just heard that it does actually link. I don't even have to BS it. I was going to BS it. It actually links, right? The point is that the the whole point is that the driving force of this movement to build a church out of the universities that teach the critical theory as the bridge between ought and is is the refusal to grow up, to mature, to perform efficiently and normally, and in for a society which compels the vast majority of the population to earn their living in stupid and human and necessary jobs, dot, 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 which in order to sustain the profitable productivity on which its hierarchy depends, utilizes its vast resources for waste, destruction, and an ever more methodical creation of conformist needs and satisfactions. So you've got to have your ESG there. You've got to get rid of the waste. You've got to be sustainable. You can't you can't. He mentions who, Who, by the way, what's in the dot 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 unnecessary jobs, which conducts its booming business on the back of ghettos, slums and internal and external colonialism, which is infested with violence and repression while demanding obedience and compliance from the victims of violence and repression. So it's got to be intersectional. You, I'm telling you, you could be Klaus Schwab reading this shit and thinking, "Oh my god, there it is, circular economy. We need to be tent- uh, attentive to the environment which we're going to destroy with our waste, with our exploitation, with, with 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 to just to do what? To generate needless stuff, more and more needless stuff for more and more unnecessary people." Whoops, did I say that part out loud? And we need to get into a circular economy that's sustainable to get away from that. So the new sensibility becomes sustainability. And within the sustainability paradigm, we have intersectionality as a necessary function because it's picked up what I call identity Marxism as a fundamental component of what this new sensibility looks like. So that's what's going on. Just to kind of round this out, I want to... let me see actually if I can find something in One Dimensional Man very quickly. It's near the end, so I probably won't find it as quickly as I want to, because I have to search words, uh keywords. Um let's see, is that it? Uh huge captive audience. No, 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 no. He, he talks about the problem of there being too many people. <laughs> he really actually does. Um I'm trying to figure out where he, where he says it, a population control or something like that. As I've keyword searched population, hopefully we will find it. Um, yeah, the direct quote. It's page 248 in this edition, the second edition, it turns out, of, of One Dimensional Man. I'll just read this to you. This is, this is on page 278 or 248. What did I say? 248. A new standard of living adapted to the pacification of existence also presupposes reduction in the future population. Then he talks about how war usually does that, but now you have to do something different. He says the moral; these moral scruple, scruples are understandable and reasonable. Talking about whatever uh, the war and uh, I just read the whole fucking paragraph. Never mind. Uh, two, a couple, few paragraphs here. A new standard of living adapted to the pacification of existence also presupposes reduction in the future population. It is understandable, even reasonable, that industrial civilization considers legitimate the slaughter of millions of people in war and the daily sacrifices of all those who have no adequate care and protection, but discovers its moral and religious scruples if it is the question of avoiding the production of more life in a society. Says antinatalism. He doesn't want more babies production of more life in a society which is still geared to the planned annihilation of life and the national interest and to the unplanned deprivation of life on behalf of private interests. These moral scruples are understandable and reasonable because such a society needs an ever-increasing number of customers and supporters the constantly regenerated excess c- capacity must be managed. However, the requirements of profitable mass production are not necessarily identical with those of mankind. The problem is not only, and perhaps not even primarily, that of adequately feeding and caring for the growing population, it is first a problem of number, of mere quantity. There is more than poetic license in the indictment which Stefan George pronounced half a century ago. Schön, uh, yours all, ist trivial. Whoever speaks German and can figure out what I said, Schön is beautiful. Shern. it doesn't have the umlaut on it, but I don't know any of the rest of that except ist. Uh, it's is a beautiful something. You, good luck. I'm not looking it up. The crime is that of a society in which the growing population aggravates the struggle for existence in the face of its possible alleviation, the drive for more living space operates not only in intergenerational aggressiveness but also within the nation. Here, expansion has on all forms of teamwork, community life, and fun invaded the inner space of privacy and practically eliminated the possibility of that isolation in which the individual, thrown back on himself alone, can think and question and find. This sort of privacy, the sole condition that on the basis of satisfied vital needs can give meaning to freedom and independence of thought, has long since become the most expensive commodity available only to the very rich who don't use it. In this respect too, culture reveals its feudal origins and limitations. It can become democratic only through the abolition of mass democracy. No kidding. That is, if society has succeeded in restoring the prerogatives of privacy by granting them to all and protecting them from each. Okay, so let me just. Literally, a new standard of living adapted to the pacification of existence also presupposes the reduction in the future population. Then he gives an an anti-natalist argument saying, well, the conservatives just, they're okay with killing everybody. If he wants to make it about hypocrisy, but they freak out if you tell them not to have more babies. And he says, well, this is just a problem of numbers. The more people you have, you have to put them places. You have to give them places to live. And then that just, just drives down privacy. And that drives down the ability to be happy and insane. And, and so we actually, he says, mankind doesn't actually need that. He said, mankind doesn't actually need that. Uh, where was that? Um, however, the requirements of, because he says it's all a matter of capitals. I'm trying to make more money with the more gadgets because you need more people to sell the more gadgets to. The requirements of profitable mass production are not necessarily identical with those of mankind. That's what he says. We don't need all these damn people. And in fact, the more people we have, the more problems we have. It's going to cause an aggravated struggle for existence. And then there's going to be losers in the intersectional hierarchy oh no, so what do we need? We need a sustainable circular economy where the managed population is all here. This is what Marcuse was arguing for when he laid the groundwork for the new left. So sustainability becomes the new new sensibility, the new paradigm he wants us to all have to operate within. And sustainability is the freaking buzzword of the century, is it not? sustainability sustainability it's a you open your eyes to what they are talking about with sustainability it's a lie it means communism with a managed population centrally planned and controlled using all the cool technological stuff that we have now where we're all content with less each your damn bugs live in your 150 square foot pod in your super smart city where you never have the need to travel more than 4, 40 you know, minutes away from your home or 15 minute walk away from your home, all your needs are right there. You never have to go anywhere. That's all mankind needs. Your basic vital needs are met. You don't have to have all of this extra stuff because it doesn't even give you real satisfaction. You can own nothing and be happy. Good Lord. So what's actually happening here then to, to wrap this up, what Marcuse is actually talking about besides how horrific that actually is and the fact that the intersectional model is just part of a sustainability model and the sustainability model is the new sensibility that's trying that they're trying to destroy the world with is in fact... Um, and I don't want to go digging up the parts and then dragging you through me digging up the parts, but he actually talks throughout, especially essay on liberation, which you also find it in, in one dimensional man. And I'm sure it's all through Counter revolution and revolt, but I haven't read all that yet. Um, he actually talks quite a bit about the idea. He's comparing capitalist societies. How are they going to get liberated versus, say, the Soviet society, the socialist societies, which are all backwards, but they could get liberated, too. We could get to this perfect communist liberated thing where the, we don't have bureaucracies anymore and everybody's happy and we have all this freedom. And he says that the problem, well, he actually literally says that what's necessary is that the superpower, the capitalist superpowers have to be weakened from within in order to achieve liberation, to get people to be willing to to have this. And then he talks about possibly a crisis, a mass crisis. Once the superpower has been weakened is, is this the gateway? I'm not kidding. He actually talks about that. Um, but the weakening of the superpower, I feel like I should actually read that to you because it seems like an extraordinary claim that demands extraordinary evidence. Um, I don't think he says superpower very often, so it should be easy to find. Uh, oh yeah. Um, under these circumstances, the preconditions for the liberation and development of the third world must emerge in the advanced capitalist countries. So we have to make the advanced capitalist countries like the third world first. South Africa is the way station along the way. I've said that a bunch of times. That's what critical race theories. Step one is, is make America like South Africa. Sorry if you're in South Africa and you don't consider yourself third world, but you guys have been driven backwards. The precondition. Preconditions for the liberation and development of the third world must emerge in the advanced capitalist countries. Only the internal weakening of the superpower can finally stop the financing and equipping of suppression in the backwards countries. So there's this weird trick there where all of a sudden, oh, that's what we actually have to do, right? Is we we have to protect the national liberation fronts, he says, the Viet Cong, the Cubans. We have to protect them and they can only happen by... Uh, stopping the Western empire from being able to fund all of this stuff. This is why they're always like, you know, end the embargo, blah, 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 or whatever. Um, But the point is they we, one thing he says that has to happen is that the, the, he says the chain of exploitation must break at its weakest link, link, and that can only come to fruition if the internal structure and cohesion of the capitalist system begins to disintegrate. And then he says, corporate capitalism is not immune against economic crisis. And he starts talking about how there's a need for a crisis. And, uh, when, when, um, yeah, he says the change itself, this is a, Paragraph and a half later, the change itself could then occur in a general, unstructured, unorganized, and diffused process of disintegration. The process may be sparked by a crisis of the system, which would activate the resistance not only against the political, but also against the mental repression imposed by the society. Almost like we would have something like COVID-19, a global pandemic, as the narrow window of time in which we could spark a great reset of the entire program into what? A new sensibility that is based in that is based in sustainability and a circular economy. Da da, da, da da. Its insane features, he says, expression of the ever more blatant contradiction between the available resources for liberation and their use for the perpetuation of servitude would undermine the daily routine. Because you're all stuck at home wearing masks. The repressive conformity, the rationality required for the continued functioning of the society. So the goal is to break the continued functioning of the society. And we could just disintegrate its moral fiber, he says. And then once that's happened, because it will cause a collapse of the work discipline, slowdown, spread of disobedience to rules and regulations, all this other crap. Once we kind of disintegrate the fiber of the country, we could hit it with a crisis. And then all of a sudden it might flip over. The superpower can finally be weakened internally. The chain of exploitation can be broken at its strongest link. And in the middle of this, though, and a part I skipped, he actually talks about the Soviets. He actually talks about the Soviet economy. Um, let's see if I can catch where that is. Uh, the problem for the, for him with the soviets though in general throughout this essay and his other stuff is that the soviets are too backwards The the, the, the social system the highly bureaucratic social system they produced doesn't produce new stuff it doesn't innovate and he says that somehow the soviet situation has to catch up it literally has to catch up to Um, the innovation, the productivity of the advanced capitalist society so it can meet those basic needs, which it's failing at. And if it can do that, then we're in business. And so imagine, if you will, let me just take you on one more frightening road of how we live in Herbert Marcuse's world. Not only is sustainability the new sensibility with intersectionality as a, where we constantly think in terms of power dynamics and who's getting screwed over and blah, 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 according to the critical theory of identity or identity Marxism, not only is that the new sensibility according to which the whole world has to be reordered, not only that, but now we have to figure out a way to weaken the super, the capitalist superpower while making the Soviet thing more innovative like advanced capitalism. Or in other words, we have to create a dialectical synthesis of capitalism and socialism. And isn't it useful that in the 1980s and Deng Xiaoping and the Chinese communist context did exactly that? He figured out a way to open up the capitalist market in China under the, the, the blessing and at the pleasure of the CCP. And so the Dengist model, named after Deng Xiaoping, creates this thing where you have capitalist-like innovation, people are striving, people are working their ass off to try to get rich, to make money, blah, 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 but it operates within this oppressive communist structured system, and you have this new thing that is a synthesis of communism and corporatism because all of the corporations serve at the, 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 they're all colluding and they're all at the pleasure of the CCP and it's all centrally planned by the CCP. So now you have this weird communo-fascist fusion that Klaus Schwab calls a public-private partnership which is going to manage the new circular economy that's going to be rooted in the sustainability and so the idea is, Marcuse is saying, we can actually achieve this. We can get to the liberated communist system that we actually want. We can get away from all of this stupidity and the failure and the losers and the injustice of the capitalist world order, of the free liberal world order, if we can just accept less. And in the process figure out how to dialectically fuse capitalism, by which we're going to mean the corrupted capitalism because it's in the Hegelian Marxist orbit, so it's going to be crony capitalism. If we can somehow fuse capitalism to socialism and create, say, a public-private partnership, which is sometimes referred to as Dengism for those who understand the Chinese context, named after, again, Deng Xiaoping, if we could just fuse those things together and then make it take up an entirely new trajectory, not one of Domination, constant reproduction of domination by getting more, making more, selling more, producing more, making more babies to buy more. But instead, we could figure out how to have a managed population with a managed circular economy that operates on sustainability, where that sustainability produces the least amount of conflict so that it stays stable, which means it has to have the least amount of winners and losers, which means we have to have an equity-based system that's going to be intersectional in its orientation. So we're going to constantly think in terms of intersectional power dynamics to figure out how to redistribute not just uh, material, but also power, privilege, opportunity, access, so that we can end up in, say, an open society situation where everybody can travel, there are no borders, blah, 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 blah but nobody should want to travel because that's not very sustainable because your carbon footprint would be too high unless you know you can do all these other things like maybe earn great social credit to earn the privilege, yada, yada, yada. And you can see we actually, you'd put the right or wrong, however you want to think of it, people in charge of reading Herbert Marcuse, understanding what Herbert Marcuse understood and then having access, and this is the necessary part, to the big players who can be bought into this whole program and oh my gosh, what can you do? You can create Herbert Marcuse's world. Now, of course, the irony is that if Herbert Marcuse were still alive, what would he look? What would he think when he looks at this? He would be horrified, I think. He would see the, the coming to fruition of his exact ideas. And he would actually, I, I, I think I can give, as evil as the guy is, and I have nothing good to say about Herbert Marcuse, nothing good to say about him, as evil as the guy is, I actually think, he would be giddy with the excitement of the of of, of thinking that it's gonna work out. He'd probably be naive to thinking that it's gonna work out. But I think when he sees like the co optation of Disney, when he sees the, you know, he sees Goldman Sachs and all of these big entities, what BlackRock is doing, when he starts to see how it's actually playing out when all these big corporate players who are all members of the WEF, by the way, the World Economic Forum thing, Klaus Schwab, who probably read a lot of Marcusa when he saw how it actually is going he would say that capitalism the will to dominate is capturing it again the new sensibility isn't pure enough i think he is enough of a pure purist theorist to where even the practicalities of seeing his revolution play out, he I think he would even be thinking it's going to fail, but not because it's a terrible idea that could never work, which is true, but because he would say that the corporate interests, which are always going to reproduce capitalism, have bought into the system, have bought into the thing and co-opted it and turned it into something it never should have been and never should be. Okay, so that's That's my case. That's my story. That's my podcast. That's, I hope, one of my last podcasts about Herbert Marcuse. Um, So just to quickly summarize, I know I covered a ton of material, but the idea that he lays out in the essay on liberation is that for communism to work as a liberation, a few things need to happen. One is that whatever's going on within capitalism needs to be broken down. And its antithesis, whatever's going on in the Soviet bloc, needs to be sped up so that it can have the technological innovation to produce what capitalism is producing to give the good life without losing its essential Soviet ca- or socialist character. It doesn't want Soviet character. So those two have to become uh, dialectically synthesized into some new thing. That new thing could be called Dengism in the Chinese context or a public-private partnership in the World Economic Forum and International Monetary Fund context. That's a precondition necessary, but we also have to have that revolutionary energy in the new proletariat. Then, therefore, to do this, we're going to have to think in terms of what that new proletariat needs and how it feels screwed by the system. So we need intersectional thought. So we have a new sensibility that's going to replace the warning, red light blinking, oh no, expansive growth of capitalism. We're going to settle for less innovation. We're gonna settle for less plastic and gadgets or whatever it is, but we'll have more freedom and more time, he says. And we're gonna settle for enough is enough and we're gonna let the machines and the technology do most of the work and most people will be liberated from having to do much work, but we'll have this public-private partnership in a totally managed circular economy where we're gonna to have to also probably manage the population to make it work, because otherwise we're going to have some major problems. And this is going to be predicated on sustainability. And at the heart of sustainability, we're going to have an intersectional model. So there aren't great injustices of winners and losers that might come up if people are actually free to make their own choices, because he thinks that this is just going to work because communism's always supposed to just work. And it's just not going to work. And this is actually, when I say we live in Herbert Marcuse's world, this is all being enforced by repressive tolerance to get here. Uh, When I say we live in Herbert Marcuse's world, we live in Herbert Marcuse's world. People took Herbert Marcuse's roadmap and they built this world out of it. And you can see all the pieces just in these works from the 60s and 70s that he wrote. We just have to be content with less. So you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Capitalism will be pushed past its breaking point. Western society will be pushed past past its breaking point. That's the two thousand. Those are both the two thousand sixteen World Economic Forum weirdo video about the Great Reset, where it's going to be predicated off of a crisis after there's been a moral fiber weakening and internal weakening of capitalism, so that it can be blended with the Soviet model only without the Soviet part, so that the innovation will stay there. So we're going to choose a middle level synthesized level of innovation and success. By the way, I didn't point this out, but the Chinese are not innovative despite their open economy because it's all managed and it's all centrally planned. They're not innovative. Everybody knows they just knock everything off. Everything's a knockoff of a knockoff in China. And that's because they're not great innovators because they don't actually have the recipe for innovation. They have the recipe for making lots of, it's cheaper and easier to reverse engineer something or copycat something than it is to truly take a risk and innovate something. And if you truly take a risk and innovate something in a system like China's and you fail, you might be destroyed. And if you produce the wrong thing that maybe undermines the government, you're done. Uh, Look at Jack Ma, for example. Granted, his his problem was that he spoke up the wrong way, but this is what happens. And so this is the model right? It is a dialectical synthesis of a public-private partnership of socialism and capitalism into communo-fascism is really the way to look at it. That's going to be predicated off of a fairy tale sustainable, circular economy that only works if we can get rid of enough inequity and injustice through intersectional manipulation to to simmer everybody down, not just within a country, but globally. And we all have to be content with less and less innovation and less success and less building and less forward motion because otherwise they believe it is an unsustainable catastrophe waiting to happen rather than, um, as we should have learned with the virus, that everything grows according to natural curves and populations grow and do to what's called a carrying capacity. And when you have technological advancement, the carrying capacity can actually move. But they don't understand this because they want communism that badly. So they're going to force everybody into the sustainable system as a new sensibility, the circular economy at a far lower level, not for them, but for most people, lower level of population, lower level of life, satisfaction, lower level of gadgets, lower level of plastic or whatever. And we'll have equity. We'll have justice. Low, low, low levels of relative privation. And everybody will own nothing and be happy together. And we'll all live in our pods and eat our bugs, etc. because the necessary ingredients to make everything work outside of their crackpot sustainability model aren't going to be there. So I'm dead serious when I say we live in Herbert Marcuse's world. I hope this has been an enlightening and horrifying, in fact, um, podcast episode. It's possibly some of the more important insight that I think I've lent to this conversation so far. So listen to it, listen to it again, get your head around it. These, these pieces from Herbert Marcuse in the 1960s, you can draw a pretty damn straight line straight to the madness of this trying to be forced upon us through things like build back better, et cetera. Today. Um, it's all there. And it, once I started to realize it's all there, it, by the way, if you want to know how the, where the trigger was, it was that they hate prosperity. He keeps bringing it up. And then I was like, what is this thing in counter revolution revolt where he's like, we should just have less. And then I actually saw the population control argument near the end of a uh, one dimensional man. recently again and I was like oh my god I forgot about that and so that's where I kind of like oh no something this is it this is is what's going on Um, and that should also tell you that the roadmap is there if you understand what Marcuse is asking for and I think we've laid it out then you understand what the strategy is going to look like and the name of the game my friends is sustainability